1: Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. Each week, we talk about the craft beer business, pop culture, and whatever else comes to mind. I'm here with my co-host, JWB's head of brewery operations, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria.
2: Buenas noches.
1: Our first guest spent the first act of his career in movie production. He has 15 feature films to his credit. For his second act, he opened a brewery with his cousin Chris in the Jersey Shore community where they were born and raised. They transformed a turn-of-the-century red brick warehouse in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, into a 15-barrel brew house. Their goal was simple, to make tasty beer in the place their tastes were formed. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Augie Carton. How you doing, man?
0: Very well, buddy. How are you?
1: (laughs) Doing well now that I actually uh, get to talk to you. It's been uh, been a minute,
0: for sure. It's it's funny. It's, It's been too long since I've seen your face, but you're one of those four or five calls I make. When things get overwhelming. So of all the people I need to see, I've at least texted with you more often than most of them. So I feel like it's not been as long as other people.
1: (laughs) That's true. That is very true. (laughs) We're going to start off here. You were born and raised in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, and that's where Carton Bruin is located. Can you describe your hometown to our listeners out there?
0: Sure. Um, So Jersey is Jersey and everybody has their opinions of it we like to let those opinions exist because it keeps most people away but (laughs) if you're in new york and you're looking at jersey 13 miles by water across is the north of the jersey shore and that northernmost beach is called sandy hook so it's about a third of the way down the city i'm sorry about a third of the way down the state and sandy hook is one of those natural land barriers you florida people know very well Right. But the town, the town, it protects is Atlantic islands. So we live in this weird, I mean, it's funny to say mountainous cause it is Jersey. Right. But the highest point on the Eastern seaboard from Maine to Miami is our hill really? down here. So they call it a mountain. Yeah. But it's, it's, you, you could run up it. John, it's not, it's <laughs> not, a, it's not a mountain. It's just the highest point on a very flat seaboard. But so that, and a whole bunch of woods and from our brewery, you're six blocks from a boat that gets you to New York in about 40 minutes. You could drive there in an hour on a normal time, two hours at rush hour. There's ocean, there's beach, and there's some of the best mountain biking in the world and the general area is Middletown. My great, great grandfather emigrated from Ireland to Middletown to open a farm. And my family has never been creative enough to leave. Like my, my kid, my kid is the seventh generation of my family. within really? three miles of the brewery. Wow, we, just, we, awesome. we never, we never think to go any further. We're like, this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, how old
1: were you when you met Kevin Smith, the the famous movie director from Jersey? How old so, were
0: you? So, what's funny is Kevin and I grew up in neighboring towns, and we are exactly the same age, but we never tracked for schools. So I meet Kevin back in the day, one of my closest buddies was going to do movies and he was getting me and a couple of our buddies into movies. So after clerks, Kevin, you know, my buddy Ian just walks into Kevin's office and is like, look, good for you. Glad it was you guys. But if it wasn't you guys, it was going to be us guys. We should work together. So Kevin sees sense in that and Pretty much every single movie Kevin made, from Clerks to the one, the Jiggly one, Jiggly oh, uh, whatever it is,
1: Jiggly, yeah,
0: um, happened when I was working in film production to some extent in New Jersey. So basically, I worked with Kevin on the couple days in New Jersey for all his movies. So weird things like Dogma is entirely shot in Pittsburgh, and then they come and do all the outside stuff in Jersey. So I work with Kevin on that week and chasing Amy. We took him up to the city to do all the, you know, all the establishing shots like those low camera on the road, pizza place shots. That's us. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, it's, and then when he moved to LA, we kind of, you know, he kind of went to LA. I stayed in New York. We, we kind of fell out of touch, but what's funny is he's back now in our town shooting all of clerks three. And he used, part of my brewery is a holding area for his extras three months ago and i i didn't even stop in to say hi because i didn't want to be that asshole (laughs) like hi kev talk to me instead of making your movie but his whole crew is in my brewery and i'm not sure we've made that connection yet oh boy
1: Oh, boy. Well, you might actually have to stop over and actually say hi. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> I will at some point, but not, not during work. Having, having been know. responsible for the scheduling of a movie, the idea of some jerk off the street be like, I'm friends with Kevin, is my worst nightmare. So I let it go.
1: <laughs> you, you actually have 15 feature films to your credit on IMDb. The Royal Tenenbaums, Vanilla Sky, Dogma, Great Expectations, Man on the Moon. What was your role on those films that, that you worked on?
0: So again, going back to the Ian guy I just referenced, Ian was my buddy my whole life, who was the one who wanted to work in movies. And he started in locations. And at some point after I stopped working at Victoria's Secret Catalog and was moving home here and just needed work, and there wasn't a cool restaurant. Usually I work as a waiter or bartender when I need a job. Um, But there was no great restaurant at the time. So I was like, hey, can you give me work? So he started me in locations on a movie called IQ that was shooting here in Jersey and Princeton. I think I've heard of so it, yeah. that was my first and I did locations for the beginning bit. Then I became a production assistant tracking towards assistant director. Um, Royal Tenenbaums was my last PA movie. I became an AB after that. And then soon after that realized that giving up that much of your life for somebody else's vision wasn't a trade I was willing to make. Like it was ideal for your twenties and early thirties, but you know, so you guys know I did big trouble down in Miami. I know. Yeah. We we know the Miami story. (laughs) (laughs) But so at one point in my life, I was three months in Miami, which is amazing when you're 27, but now I'm 50 with two kids and a wife. If I had to go to Miami for three months to make somebody else's movie, I'd regret that. So that's when I left it was as an assistant director, I think my last movie, I don't know, it was I think my real last movie was an Olsen Twins movie. So oh that's boy. how long ago that was. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: been a while. It's been a while. So mm. um, So
0: then Wall Street and then Brewing.
1: Oh. So th- that's the that's the real question. So when did craft beer enter your consciousness? Like when did you start to drink it and when did you even dream about brewing
0: or making it? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to try to keep this to four time points and keep it short. I grew up in a house with a dad who wanted to figure out food. And I learned all that from him, but part of that was he was learning about wine with a group of neighbors one of those guys wrote a book called the great American beer book in 1984. Oh my God. His name is James Robertson. Right? So if you open the great American beer book by James Robertson from 1984. So think of the time of when Michael Jackson was writing all his books, James was doing Jimmy, Jimmy was doing that here. Um, but if you look at it, it's a catalog of all the available beers that they can get American. Like my dad and his buddies traded for anchor steam three times trying to write it in this book. Like think about trading beer. In 1983, my dad and his buddies mailed Anchor Steam across America three times and never rated it because they never got a good bottle. Oh, wow. But but in the forward of that, the thanks is to my dad for hosting all the tastings. Oh. So, you know, they'd come over to my house. They'd all drink 20 beers, talk about them, write them down, and learn. And this was the group who was tasting wine. And at the same time, like these guys would do like – saturday lunch where they all tried to figure out how to boil lobsters they were all just trying to figure (laughs) out food of course the reason i tell the story is in my context beer was always part of that there was never a wine and food beer on the other side thing so i've always seen it that way but then the significant moments i think that are craft is you know i'm a 19 20 21 year old waiter one of the guys i wait tables with dad has a house in colorado we go out to try to get a weekend of skiing in, um, you know, as a vacation. And we have Fat Tire oh, okay. in Vail. Okay, You know what I mean? We have yeah. Fat Tire in Vail. So now in my head, Fat Tire isn't a real thing, right? The only craft beer I really knew was Sierra. And I'd had a couple. But but all of a sudden it was when you're in Colorado, you drink this beer. right? And that formulated it. And then the last was probably about 20 years ago at this point. And I was drinking a lot more craft and it was, you know, I was always interested in whatever, but the best sommelier I know, a guy named Paul Greco had opened his own restaurant called Hearth. And for a fall menu, he had chosen five saisons to pair with five dishes. And that caught my attention. I sat down. Paul was a great guy at discussing. Here's why, here's how, here's what. And they, back in the day, John, you know how hard it was to find Saison. Oh, in of 90, you know. Of in, course. 2004 right but it was like dupont and so on but he found five was doing that with food and that's when it all clicked for me that literally every single time i'm ordering food i should be considering you know wine beer cocktail coffee water as which is the best for this dish and that starts carton brewing
1: oh okay i mean that's that's an awesome idea i mean I agree. I mean, because I think beer has come a long ways. I mean, it used to be just cocktails and wine were the preferred choice when you're having pairings with food. But I mean, I think beer in a lot of instances pairs a lot better with a lot of dishes than those other two do. I mean, that's my personal opinion. But I mean, yeah. from hearing what you say, I mean, it's it's kind of like the same thing.
0: You know what I mean? I, I'd 100% agree. And And the only thing I point out to people that get sometimes huffy about the current state of beer is that I feel like right now we're in this wonderful phase of the late nineties in wine where people have yet to separate what I call a cocktail wine versus a table wine. There's some beers that are like Cabernet Sauvignon from California or Chardonnay from California. They're just meant to be drunk. They're not meant to go to table. They're big and they're ridiculous and they're a joy and they're fun. And you're right. standing around talking and you're drinking it. And then there's all the other beers, a properly made Pilsner, a Cezanne, a, you know, lightly adorned stout that are all meant, you know, you can drink a beer anytime you want, but those are the ones that fit a table. So there's kind of the ones that are meant to be everything in the glass. And there's the ones that are meant to be part of a whole. And as we mature as an industry, I think people just learn the difference. Like it used to be people drank big oaky Chardonnays with, everything. And now they know that that's a standing up drinking wine and that Rieslings are better at table. You know what I mean? No, absolutely.
1: I agree. I mean, I think we're in that kind of, uh, like you said, that, that depth of, of, of a season in beer where people are still trying to figure out what belongs where. And we have all these heavily fruited sours, smoothie sours, these heavily adjuncted stouts, (laughs) and then, you know, these pastry stouts. And then you have your Northeast IPAs, and then you have your classic styles of, you know, pills and then just a normal West coast IPA or, you know, a Saison. I mean, it's, Eh. I think we're still all trying to figure that out. How long have you guys been open now at Carton Brew?
0: So we just hit a decade, August 11th. We are 10 years old as of two weeks ago.
1: And who in the beginning, who, who made up that founding besides yourself
0: Okay, so in the partnership at the beginning was myself, my cousin Chris, and my wife's best friend's husband, Jesse. Right. So Jesse and I were kind of brew team, Chris was kind of business team, and it was kind of my hopes and dreams, you know, as realized through brewing with Jesse. That's the triumvirative, if you will. Now, just as a side note, about five years in commuting from Brooklyn to Jersey by car five days a week, <laughs> broke Jesse, and he's now got his own brewery called Interborough in Brooklyn. Right. And for our 10th anniversary, you'll be very proud of this, John. We we brewed a stout together and put it into his whiskey barrel because he had just hit four years old, so he could take American whiskey out of a barrel and bottle it. Right. So for our 10th anniversary, he bottled a beer and then we brewed a stout <laughs> into one of his whiskey barrels for our 10th. So that's I was, amazing. I mean, that's everything I've ever dreamed of happening in one bottle of beer. Of course.
2: You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we are talking to Augie Carton of
1: Carton Brewing. What was the size of the brewery when you guys first started?
0: So it's a 15 barrel brew house and still is. Um, we opened with three 30 barrel tanks, um, just as a side note, since it is a business show, at the time, Jersey didn't allow you to sell beer in your tasting room. You could only give away four tastes and sell the equivalent of two six-packs. Okay. Um, otherwise, it had to be outside. So there was no feasibility to anything smaller than that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, well, Of
1: course. Because you right. you're going you to the distro the
0: model. If you're actually going to make money, right. you have to make yeah. volume to actually make yeah. money. Yeah, the only small value option was giving away beer. So we couldn't do that. So we opened with a 15-barrel brew house and three 30-barrel fermenters as the 13th brewery in New Jersey in 2011. Wow. Um, That worked much better than we expected. So within a year, we added three more fermenters in the size of 45s. And then I think kind of our nervousness in the business model, we hit a wall and we had to grow into a whole new space to fit anything more. So then there's a lag where we're kind of stuck around three, 4,000 barrels a year. And then we ended up taking over the building next door to us, renovating it to accept a brewery. And we're still on that 15 barrel brew house, but we have two nineties, four three forty fives, and three thirties.
1: So what kind of overall production are you guys
0: doing now? Um, Right now, we're still kind of buckled down around 6,000 almost entirely in New Jersey. And then our hope is to grow. You know, I'd like to see this coming out of COVID and gently ramping up. Right. I think we all do. (laughs) Yeah. But but I'd like to get to 10,000 reasonably in the next two years. Right. But Jersey and its really ridiculous arcane laws mean there's only X number of bars to sell to and all of them were shut down slash whatever. So 75% of our business in kegs is kegs and bars. And I feel like the potential's there, but everybody needs to shake off the shock of COVID before everybody starts paying to install and fix and clean up draft lines and get modern. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. So I've seen your nine-point manifesto on brewing in beer advocate. I mean, you, you, you've even, you know, <laughs> you even did a TED Talk on beer as cuisine. Boil it down to our listeners. What is your philosophy on brewing beer and more importantly, enjoying beer?
0: So I, I like to view it all from the perspective of a chef at the pass, if you will, like a, a cooking chef, an executive chef. So I do my best work when I'm paired up with somebody that, that compliments the other side. And, and when we're doing our job perfectly, I mean, we've created some styles that didn't exist before carton we've worked to make what we think should exist in styles that exist our way for our community. And we've worked to fool around with geniuses out there, like you and our other friends to make a carton version of what's in the current zeitgeist. So philosophically, I see it all from there. Like I just imagine a mise en place of salt, pepper, all your herbs, you got your saute pan, you got your protein. And I think our job, just as carton, not as craft brewers, but just as carton, our job is to carefully respect that first ingredient, which for us is beer and then augment rather than flavor. Okay. So I see hops as the joke I make in the, the, Ted talk is as herbs, right? So if you put parsley in a chicken dish before you cook it, you get green kind of astringent flavors all the way through. And if you chop parsley and throw it on, when it comes out of the oven, you get parsley. I see hops like that. Where do we want it in this dish reserving beer? So as a chef philosophy, when I cook, I'm kind of torn between two ends of the spectrum. I love that modernist reinvention, reinterpretation, you know, dissection approach to cooking. Okay. But I also really love that kind of great farm and table, no more than five ingredients. If you're making a pasta, make a condiment, not a sauce. If you're making a chicken, make a chicken dish. And, you know, it's it's like you guys and I, like you're my king of all cocktails. But you know that I almost <laughs> never, when I make a cocktail, use juice anymore. I'm always using a bitters. Right, absolutely. Because I think you, you can much better preserve the flavor of the whiskey you're building on right Right. so so it's all that and it's like i said i see it as kind of that's the type of chef i am and that's the type of beers i have to make
1: people are gonna have to go look up your ted talk now
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's almost 10 years old just search augie carton ted talk and i think it comes up
1: (laughs) so which of the beers that you guys have brewed at carton that you are most proud of and why
0: Uh, So it goes without saying, and this has become a common joke amongst anybody who's our customer and anybody I, you know, any friend of mine, another brewery, but I I honestly believe Boat is the best beer in the world. Um, I was going to say Boat. I was going (laughs) to (laughs) say (laughs) Boat. It's a a great beer. Yeah, But it's become kind of illustrative of those same philosophies we've been talking about. So 10 years ago, through a conflux of situations beer was getting super interesting. Like, like beer to me really becomes what it is when the aromatic hops thing starts. So for my frame of reference up here, that's things like dogfish, 90 nugget, nectar, flower power. When these beers start actually making their way into my life without me seeking them out and they have these beautiful aromatics on them as if they're a wine, right? They're not just beer-flavored beer where you pick things out. There's this first hit of aromas, and I just get super excited by what that is. But, and I imagine anybody who's a craft beer fan, and maybe any spirits fan have had this, what would happen is I'd walk into a bar, something like Rastafari would have come out, a guy who knows me, who's trying to be, it was very hard to be craft 10 years ago in New Jersey or 12 years ago in New Jersey, but a guy who had committed would be like oh we've got one you're gonna love and they'd pour me a pint and i would drink it and just like it was a dish or a wine i'd be like what is that smell how'd they get that smell and this is why i was you know this is why i was homebrewing with jesse and why i was reading all these books i just needed to be able to dissect what why where but what happened is three pints in of wow this is great and how did they do that and i'd be in a lot of trouble like, you know, because these of beers course. are always 9%. Right, right. Always. Always. And I I didn't learn that young to ask that question. I'd like get up from the stool after three and be like, oh, I need a cab. <laughs> so then I set about the mission of how do we make a beer that satisfies these things at a much lower alcohol at 4.2, right? Because right. I'm part of that dare generation where cops would come in to... <laughs> the classroom and kind of give you an algorithm where right. they're like, here's how much you can drink. And I am six 180. Right. Of course, a beer unit is 4.2 beers. I can drink one an hour. And you know what I mean? And all right. of my drinking has always been through that lens. They gave me wow. in 10th grade, right? This is how my body metabolizes. <laughs> so beyond that, I'm in trouble under that. I'm fine. So I needed to calculate it for two. And I got together with Jesse, my old brew partner, and we made a whole bunch of choices I think from the chef perspective, not the brewer perspective. I think when brewers try to solve this, they take a big beer and make it small. Right. And I think when a chef tries to solve this, they build a new recipe. Of course. So we did things like select Kulsh yeast because it accentuated the bitterness while giving some fruitiness at a lower ABV, which would at the time classic Chico wouldn't do. Uh, we added wheat, even though it made the beer ugly. Keep in mind, 10 years ago, hazy wasn't a thing. If you go look at the first three no. beer advocate reviews no. of Boat, it gets yelled at for being too cloudy. Right. And then five years later, they're like this isn't hazy enough. So trends. <laughs> but um, but so we were like, OK, with the haze because we wanted the flavor because we were homebrewers. Right? right. This is all just us trying to solve this. We discovered Citra and Amarillo on top of cascade and the way it did that kind of pretty grapefruity fun thing that was in all these beers. I liked while maintaining that smells a little bit like weed touch and fermented a little bit warmer than you would with Kolsch and ran it through and got it done and made a beer we loved. And then business hour, that's when you join a thing, right? I'm a market participant that sees a hole in the market with something I think fills the market. So we start carton brewing based around boat, but starting from that solve the problem from a building perspective is how we invented the coffee, cream ale, yellow, you know, fuck your stout coffee, cream ale, (laughs) or we just did a little 3% fuck your seltzer beer. We call pool. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, our whole thing is our whole thing is I don't want a seltzer. I want something that tastes like a beer that I can drink 50 of. So let's build a 3% beer that does those things. Right. So
1: what's next for you guys? What's next for Carton Brewing? Another location, wider distribution, global dominance?
0: I mean. The global dominance, definitely. That's that's <laughs> on the list. I've been trying to hold it off for a couple of years, but I think I'm ready. <laughs> um, no. Um, so it's funny. It's I think where I want to get, where I haven't been able to be is the most fun I'm having now. I think everybody had a little shift in mentality around COVID. Well, well, we can also throw
1: in the bit that you've also stopped working Wall Street. Now you're 100% Yes, I did. I did quit so.
0: my Wall Street job. I'm 100% at Carton now, I'm solving some problems that came up from me not being 100% at Carton and uh, hopeful about that. That's, that is a good point. But now, so where I'm having the most interesting opportunities. I think people trapped in their house with beer for a year, made some shifts in outside our craft community. But chefs who've always known me, who were always like, yeah, 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 I get it. You, I should have your beer, but let's face it, wine programs make more money, blah, 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 blah. I think all those guys who do drink beer had a lot of alone time to think about it. And a lot of those people are coming to me with Tell me more about Saison. Tell me more about Pilsner. Tell me more about. So I've, instead of people calling me up like that old trope, that crappy craft beer thing where restaurants that can't fill up on a Tuesday night, ask you to do a night with them where you bring six kegs and you get all your people to go to their restaurant. Of course it's now, I'm now seeing more opportunity for symbiosis with creative restaurants and the nice part about being in the most densely populated state is I don't need to reach too far distribution-wise to achieve certain goals. So I think I'd like to spend the next year really working with those creative spots and just reaching out to people. Because I think, I think right now we're in this weird sweet spot, the iron's hot, because people trapped in their houses weren't drinking shitty seltzer. <laughs> That's very true.
1: They were not. They were
0: drinking. They were were drinking things like Sierra. Like, remember three years ago? All right. As a business thing, three years ago, we were all worried about Sierra and those things because they were old and the new shit guys like you and I were putting out were getting all the attention of the craft people. Of course. COVID happens and Sierra racks start selling through the roof because everybody knows they can trust it. Correct. And if you locked yourself in your house with Sierra and started thinking about beer again differently and in that, context, I think you're coming back to guys like us for being the local people who can provide that. And I see that outreach as the best potential for my mission of beer is cuisine. So some liquor stores are getting it, some restaurants are getting it and the more of them we can connect with speak as, as you know, partners in the mission of not making money, but providing experience and that beer really can be as significant experience as your wine dinner, as long as the chef and the brewer can talk to each other. Okay. That's what I'd like to see us focus on. While again, we try to roll back out to, like I said, the markets that no we've been missing, it. Yeah, you know, a, y- a year of no restaurants and no bars right, right. needs, I think two years of just shaking hands, looking at each other and of getting course. that back. But while we do that work, these are the opportunities okay. I see.
1: Well, I really appreciate your time, brother. Thank you very much. I mean, this has been thank you, amazing. Man. And uh we will be seeing you very soon. And uh
0: Thanks, Augie. Thanks. Hey Maria, thank you too. John and I did that whole thing where we just talked. I kept seeing you be like, say hi to Maria. How are you? I miss you. Fantastic. Thank I miss you. you and I love you. Don't <laughs> worry about it. We will it. all be together soon. We'll thank drink you guys. some wine. All right, thank thanks. you very
1: much, brother. Have a good one. Bye. Be good.
0: You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our
1: next guest was born in Barbados, grew up in Miami, was a two-time national champion with the University of Miami football team, and became a cornerback in the National Football League. Over his 11-year professional career, he played for six teams, Los Angeles Rams, Washington Redskins, Dallas Cowboys, Detroit Lions twice, and the Baltimore Ravens. He's a two-time Super Bowl champion, winning one with the Dallas Cowboys in 1995 and one with the Baltimore Ravens in 2001. He holds an NFL record for the longest punt return in league history, 103 yards. After his playing days were over, he started a career in sports marketing and is now the president of Rosenhaus Sports. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Robert Bailey. How
2: you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Good to be here, you know, in the brewery, <laughs> JW Brewery is awesome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
1: Thank you. Um, take us back to the beginning how old were you when you first played football like when did you first get into football
2: wow so my parents my mother and my stepfather migrated here from Barbados I was born in Barbados and I came I came to Miami when I was around 9 years old saw these kids playing football in the street and I was like what the hell is that what? <laughs> that's not even a ball what is that thing and um, just made friends with kids in the neighborhood, and they taught me the game. And um, I went from playing cricket and soccer to playing football every single day. I learned in the streets. All my buddies, they all, you know, we stayed friends and are still friends today. That taught me football in those in those streets of Cutleridge. I was about to ask where you grew up. Yeah, Cutleridge, and um, you know. We all end up going to college, and, and that was how football started for me. Went played at Richmond Heights Little League Park, and we were Richmond Giants, and those coaches played a m- tremendous part in my life, in my football career, creating what I became. Where did you go to high school down here? I uh, went to Southridge High School. Oh, four okay. years at Four years at Southridge, and um, had an um, amazing career there. Lost four games in four years. <laughs> and um, it's not bad yeah we were we were um, (laughs) we were a a tough team and uh really really enjoyed my high school uh time then went to the florida georgia game and uh signed with university of miami from from there and and that was that was how it started
1: so you played football and you ran track in high school. Yes. And then obviously you went to the University of Miami to play college football. Yes. Uh, you had already been part of a two time national championship team, 87, 89. Yep. Yep. But it was really the first play of the 1991 Cotton Bowl versus the Texas Longhorns. Yep. That yep. you probably most remember for. I mean, some call it her, you know, the shot heard around the world. Yep. Others argue that it was the single most play that defined that era of University of Miami football. It was. Can you tell us what happened on that first play of that Cotton Bowl?
2: You know, we, were, we, we came into town, and the Cotton Bowl was not, you know, we were already upset that we weren't playing for the national championship. So we were already um, coming into town filled with uh, anger and a lot of different other emotions, and they just didn't treat us, I guess, they just didn't treat us the way we thought we should have been treated. Um, players from Texas – we were a rowdy bunch, right? yeah. so <laughs> players, from, to say the least. Players from Texas were were really doing a lot of talking, and they didn't, you know, the Cotton Bowl committee didn't really um, take us to the hospital or take us to some of the the charity stuff that was going on. We were the media was portraying us in this like. Wild wow, party team every time they showed us at night on on, on the news we were in some <laughs> party and then when they would show the, the tech the, the texas players they were they were at a hospital or they were doing some charity event and then um that one player said something really um upsetting about our team not being um who we claim to be and I just told all the guys, I said, you know, I'm going to knock this dude out when he <laughs> when he gets the ball. <laughs> and I was pretty, I was a different person back then. I was, I would, you, ta- you asked me to run through a wall, I would run through a wall. So, um, I knew he was, he was their starting running back, but he was also their, their returner on kickoff. And so I just, you know, I ran down there and, and my intention was to, to, to take his head off and, um, I I came close to
1: that. <laughs> yeah. We saw the clip. I mean that's I mean, I still I grew up watching that University of Miami and watching you guys and it was definitely I think they're trying to bring that kind of mentality, that kind of vibe back to the university now because you guys had a different swagger and in, in everything about you from that whole run from eighty seven through ninety one. I mean it was crazy. Just the mentality you guys had. I mean obviously I think football's a little bit different nowadays. As far as the approach goes, and how you can hit players and and stuff like that, but I mean, to me, that that was what football was.
2: Right. I couldn't play t- in today's game. I would I wouldn't have made it. They would have kicked me out every game. <laughs> um, there was a, there was a, a quote. My coach, not a quote, actually, He was a. Was trying to give me some advice after my first uh, three weeks in training camp. He came up to me and he, he in 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 the NFL and at the Rams and he said to me, "You know you can't kill everything <laughs> you know, every play you're trying to kill everybody with the ball and the ball would be in the air, and I would just focus on the receiver trying to hurt him instead of going after the ball he says, you know you're a cornerback you you're not a linebacker you got you gotta start focusing on going <laughs> after the ball I think that was the first time in my life I really said i really like." it came clear to me like wait, wait a second i'm i'm not supposed to hurt this guy i'm supposed to go after the ball so i don't know that that changed my my way of thinking in the nfl and um then i would say my my my
1: game really started to take off after that one lesson so you also like you your name on Instagram is NFL Record. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that. You also had a pretty memorable play on October twenty third, 1994, mm-hmm. when you played for the L.A. Rams. There was like four minutes, 16 seconds remaining in the game in the fourth quarter. Your team's down by 10. Tommy Barnhart of the New Orleans Saints, he punched the ball. Mm-hmm. What happens next?
2: Well, I was the short returner, and we had a, a guy that's in the back. He's a, he's a deep returner. And after the punt, I'm supposed to really run back and block for him, unless it's a short punt, then I right. catch the ball. Uh, it went over my head, so I, I ran back to block for him, and it went over his head. We are already down. There's, we're, you know, we're, we are um, trying to win the game. As you mentioned, it's near the end of the game. And I noticed the ball was bouncing. I know every rule in, in the NFL back then. Um, and I knew until the ball stopped bouncing, I would, you know, it was a live ball. So I just kept kind of just snuck around everyone and (laughs) went to the back of the end zone and then, and then just bolted out of there, scooped the ball and started running and just was saying to myself the whole time, like, I hope my team didn't come on the field, which would then cause a penalty. Um, When you look at film, some guys did walk on the field. And luckily, the referees were focused on me and not all the other players walking on the field. They didn't throw a flag, they let the play stand. And to this day, it became, uh, it's still the longest punt return in NFL history. So, So, the funny thing is, my son was born that night. Oh, really? Yeah, my son was Uh born that night. And uh, I knew um, his mother went into labor. Before the game, right before the game. So the plan was to play the game and then fly home, which I did. But it's just incredible that all that happened the night my son was born. So how many yards is that record? It's 103. When it first happened, um, they said it was 107. But once it went into the Guinness Book of World Records, they, they did their Measuring, right? Of course, official, and then they they said it was 103, and um, you know, now that they changed the rules, it can never be broken, right? Because once it goes into the end zone, the ball is dead. right.
1: So back then, it was still a live ball as it was still moving, right? That's crazy. It's crazy. That's yeah, I, crazy.
2: I, I won. I won best play in the NFL. I won an ESPY award, and a lot of wow. things happened. Yeah, it was um. It was a fun time. It was a good time in my career. So how long was your journey in the NFL? How many years did you play? I played 11 years in the NFL. And you won two? Two Super Bowls Uh, and NFL record. So, you know. That's not bad. That's (laughs) not bad. Yeah, It's pretty good for a local Miami kid, right? Right. From from all the way south, Cutler Ridge. Um, You know, a lot of good. Great times in football throughout my career, a lot of good positive stuff and a lot of good um, uh, teaching moments, a lot of good uh, you know boy to man moments. So the NFL uh, football, college football, high school football, little league football and, and the NFL really played a tremendous part in, in who I've become. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield and we are talking to NFL record holder Robert Bailey.
1: When did you meet Drew Rosenhaus? Was he your agent, or where along the lines did you meet Drew? So Drew
2: was my agent coming coming out of college. Him and his brother, his brother Jason Rosenhaus, um, was in class with me, and we were really uh, good friends in class. And um, when I came out of college, Drew was was really starting to pick up his his business. Jason hadn't started. Obviously, he he was in class with me. We graduated at the same time. It's funny we have a picture of us both at graduation with our hat and gown and stuff. So, um, but I knew that Jason was going to partner with his brother, and so uh, I signed with them. But I, I I let Drew know that I wanted Jason to be a, a major part of the negotiations for my contract to help him get his his you know, find his way and and, and um, so ended up being with them my entire career and I retired and two months into my retirement they wanted me to come work with them because I had started really working on a marketing business while I was in the NFL I was representing guys marketing wasn't what it is today because of social media and all the different opportunities and platforms that give these guys the avenue to to really market themselves and make money back then it was it was different but I had the the foresight to see that you know these guys are are valuable assets to the NFL and you know they can make money in endorsements and marketing and and doing community relations stuff and activations and so I started that and and drew at the time the agency didn't have that so they wanted really to bring bring all that together and about two months into my retirement they asked me to do that and I did it and now it's been 25 years I'm (laughs) I'm with them Uh, and that's it's funny it's it's a long time (laughs) 25 years and and he's been uh, in practice actually 25 years as an agent and now 30 years with him total right from when he was your agent until right yeah. so it is 30 about well, 33 years total so it's been a long time with him um they're like family to me right uh, I, they know all of my family I know all of their family right. we we really built up an agency that started maybe in the in the we had about 20 something players when I ju- joined and now we're uh right around 100 maybe a little bit over 100 players so, so we
1: we we've done pretty well so can you tell me like Obviously, we live in a day and an age now where social media is almost everything. Right. And it can really help you, but, I mean, at the same time... Yeah, it could hurt it you. It could hurt you, too. I mean, you could be 100%. one hundred percent one dumb tweet away from saying something wrong that could ruin you. 100%. How do you guys advise your clients regarding how to use social media? Well, you know, besides all the companies
2: out there that provide that, that service, uh, coming into the NFL, um, we, we have them sit down... Uh, with the right people to really guide them and teach them how to use social media, and uh-huh. how, how to post, what to say and what not to say. There's trigger words that we tell them stay away from. And, um, you know, it's not, that that's great at the beginning, but they're still young, they're still in their 20s, early 20s, and uh, they make mistakes. So it is a constant, everyday um Watching their posts, helping them with their posts, uh, making sure that their social media manager is on top of everything they're doing. Because it doesn't matter that you're all over it; they're, they still party at night. They still do things. Right. That's they're still going to post when maybe the person that's looking over their their social media platform is sleeping at night, and this guy is partying at two, three in the morning. Things happen. You just so so you just it's it's a different it's a different day and age, you know, team will uh, move on from you, cut you and not use your football services just for, for, because of what you, you, you do in, in social media, because, um, you know, the, the brand is everything. Teams now are worth $5 billion. When I came into the league, you could buy an NFL team for a couple hundred million. Now they're, they're, you know, billions. Yeah. The last value of the, Dallas Cowboys was like five point six billion, right? Wow!
1: So you you, you got to protect that brand. They they want that. They want to protect that money. So I mean, let's talk. You know, we ha- this is the beer hour. We have to get in a little bit of beer. So we actually, I met you because we work out at the same gym. Yeah, we work out at Legacy Fit. Yeah, obviously, Legacy
2: Fit in the house.
1: And you you still care, obviously, about. Your health and wellness, even yeah. after you've moved on past football, I, I oh, agree yeah. with you. I mean, it's something in my life that is done. But we have, you know, the brewery itself and and Manning Sumner kind of came together and have created this new beer, which I think kind of got you on track. I know we've talked; you're not huge in the craft beer, but then we brought out No Days Off, right? Which is our doesn't really fit into like the i mean it's still craft beer but right. we're really going after like the post-workout which no one's really ever done i mean right. we're looking at a low alcohol with electrolytes for something that you can easily grab right you know, and enjoy after a workout and, and i think you you've actually had it and tried it yeah
2: i see. did it's really good uh I, I like the concept of a beer for athletes or right beer for for people who are very active you know because at the end of the day, you, you, you got to relax, right? You, you got to right. get to that moment where um, you can relax. And instead of picking up uh, the standard beer with all the calories and all, the you know, the alcohol content in it, to have this this option, to me, is great, I think, is, is something uh, that should get looked at more. I think more beer companies should, should think about that right. aspect of, of, um, of their beer and, and, and the new um, customer that that's buying their beer because now, uh, you know, as far as I can see in in Miami in South Florida, everyone's working out. like right. you right. know it is it is a city of of yoga pants, and so <laughs> I true. just I just think that you know the concept that you guys have started is is really good, and and I'm not a, like as as you mentioned, I'm not a, a big beer drinker, but I I did like the taste of that beer. Most beer Drinkers drink beer because there's this innate passion for beer and the way it's brewed and all these different things, oats and all right. these things. I hear people talk about. I drink beer for taste, right? Right. So if it's not bitter, I'm good. And the good thing about that right. is that
1: that beer's not bitter. All right. So we got the NFL starting on Thursday. Yeah. Do you still get amped up this time of year? Oh hell yeah! yeah. I love it. I love it on
2: on you know my job um on Saturdays I'm at college football and then on Sundays I'm at an NFL game and then on Mondays I'm at a Monday night game and then Tuesdays I'm I'm dealing with every player that has been injured from the weekend right and then Wednesday Thursday kind of still dealing with second opinions doctors who how bad is the injury what's the injury um and and where you go from there. And then Thursday is another NFL game. And then Friday you're back on the college tour. So for me, football is my life, right? right, You're rolling right Uh, now. Football's my life. And, um, and, but I understand that, you know, and I, and, and I love it. And with every negative thing you can say about football, right? The concussions, I could say 10 great things, right? right? So, um, I, I, I love football. I love how God has impacted my life through football. Right. Uh, football is, is what uh, put the roof over my, my head, my family's head, and the food on our table. Uh, I absolutely love this sport. I mean, who wouldn't want to? work in an industry that they love, right? Right. As a kid that you played as a kid and you still as a grown up, you're still I'm fifty two years old. I'm right. still playing. Right. You're I'm, doing you know, it. You're yeah. living that dream. It's it's awesome. It is absolutely awesome. And so, you know, um I, I don't do it for the money. I just do it because it's a passion of mine. And you know, hopefully one day when I'm old and I die, I
1: die on the football field. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, there's probably a lot of people out there working jobs that aren't happy doing what you're doing. And right. then to be able to do something that in a sport, especially that you enjoy oh, yeah. and love to do it for as long and keep doing it for as long as you want to yeah. do it. I mean, it's something special. Yeah. I, mean, I still wish I could be it somehow tied. You know, I 100%. played through college.
2: Yeah. You know, 100 percent. I mean, to, to watch a young man maybe not be financially stable family wise and then to struggle and then to get to the NFL and and finally make it and then and then get to that next level contract where you know you have s- generational money and and to be a part of that journey is to me is special those guys you know I stay close with them I mentor them for their entire life until I mean they go into business after the career's over and I'm still there right and those relationships are meaningful to me. They they mean a lot. These guys mean a lot to me. They're like um, young brothers or young sons, and and we're all at the end of the day, we all become alumni brothers. It's Almost from, like a family. Yeah, it's a family. It's a family. And That's what I always tell these kids out here. You're 100%, all family. They're all yeah. family. And um, you know, we we represent the father, and then all of a sudden they have a son, and then we're representing some sons yep. and brothers that have younger brothers, and and it's just. You know it's all
1: it's amazing it's awesome all right last question before you go give us your dark horse pick for who's winning the super Bowl this year man
2: my door okay this is gonna this one's gonna be crazy this one's gonna be crazy but my my pick i i wanna say my pick is gonna be i won't call it a dark horse but i'm gonna say tampa again again but if I'm going to pick a team that maybe n- not as popular and easy, I would say Washington. Really? Yeah, I like Washington. I Whoa. like I okay. like their defense. I like their I okay. like what they're doing. I think they sneaky. they're sneaky. They they have some great players. Uh I think their defense is going to be ranked in the top 5 this year and defense wins championships. Oh, of course. Oh, you well, yeah, you know that. Yeah. And yeah. so and so I think that um sorry Rocco they're they're gonna be uh, yeah I'm sorry buddy I I mean sorry to me too because the Dolphins you know um
1: I'm gonna have to keep an eye out for
2: I think the Dolphins have a chance of being uh of making the playoffs if they get Watson right Right. that would be that would be huge and it, it sounds and looks like that may be happening um but you know, it's, it's like anything else. You know, Dolphins is in a, a tough division. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, li- I just like, I like Washington. Okay. I think they, they have an opportunity. That's but awesome. I, I think, you know, I think Tampa right. coming out in their last game, preseason game, yeah. with three wide receivers and one running back, oh, and letting Tom spread. Brady just throw. That spread. I said, oh, my God, they're going to another level. Because now they, wanna, they want Tom Brady, they want to use him more – in the shotgun rather oh. than coming out from under the, the center, center yep. to protect him. And he's got three, um, three starting s- receivers that could be number one that yep. will be would be number ones on any other team. Right. And so he's got like a kid in the candy store, and right. I just don't see their defense stacked up more. No, they, nobody's stopping them. Right. They kept the same. They're the only team that kept – Ma- percentage-wise, majority of their, of their team, team, team from the came back from the Super Bowl.
1: Okay. So how do you, how do you <laughs> stop that? Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man, and thank you for your time, brother. Thanks, all Rob. Good, so. man, all good. You know, people should come
2: by here and, and see this place. JW Brewery is really awesome, you guys. Uh, all the different beers here. If you're into beer, this is the place to come. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it, man. Not a thank problem, you. man. Thank you for having me.
1: That's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Augie Carton and Robert Bailey, my co-host Maria Cabre, and my producer Rocco Riggio. Thanks for listening. We're here each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturday at 8 p.m. and Sunday at 1 p.m. You can also find repeat episodes on the SiriusXM app. Remember, people, the thirst is real.